When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So Drake and Beyonce have been known to change the face of music a time or two, but they've never done it before simultaneously in the same week. They both have new projects out that are huge changes of pace, and they're both influenced by 90s house music. Drake surprised released the album Honestly Nevermind. Beyonce dropped the song Break My Soul. And they have a lot of similarities. They were released within a couple of days of each other. So we're going to dive into that this episode. I'm going to start by talking to Jeffy Haza about Drake. Then I'm going to talk to Manka Per Conte about Beyonce. And as a bonus, we had another legend, Paul McCartney, turn 80 and play a huge concert in New Jersey while he was at it. So to talk about Paul at 80, I'll have Rob Sheffield. But to start out, here's me and Jeff on the new Drake. So Drake released Honestly Nevermind, announced it and released it within the span of a few hours, as you put it in your review, Jeff. And I love watching the response to an album like this as much as I love forming my own response. And I think possibly because, in part because it's it's a radical change, it really is a dance album. And I think because the first track, Falling Back, is in my opinion, not one of the best. Finding myself, showing myself. Finding a way to stay out of the way, holding me back. There was a real tepid reaction to it at first. In fact, some people were saying that it sucked. And then it went to, well, the song Sticky is amazing. My mama wish I would have went corporate. She wish I would have went exec. I still turn to a CEO, so the lifestyle she respect. Hey, two sprinters to Quebec. People were loving the song Massive. I don't want to... And then I think it started to turn to, wait, maybe this album is great. And I think you kind of land closer to that reading your review. So, yeah, I think, you know, people have not been surprised in a long time. And that was kind of my first feeling when I heard the record. I was just like, it, it was like giddy almost how I felt where I was like, oh, this is like actually so weird that this is happening. And this is the first time I felt this way in years of just like someone did something actually truly surprising. And I think with that comes like you're going into a Drake album and like, of course, you hear the slow build up into this very vulnerable sounding vocal delivery where it's like it's almost like he doesn't care about the polish and it's very emotional. That's a pretty jarring jump from like, where did, you know, certified lover boy leave us with like this like big machismo Drake. And then you turn this on and the first thing you hear is falling back. And I think that in this instant response age, people tend to form opinions based on like the first track they hear. And they just be like, this is mid <laughs> until it does feel like that a, a little review. bit. Yeah, exactly. There was definitely a lot of that. And I mean, speaking of TikTok, it's funny that I saw a video of just what you described, where it was like Gen Z listening to the Drake album. And then it was like the first three seconds of like the first four songs and then (laughs) an opinion forming. And yeah, I mean, I think it's like, and it's interesting that it's a dance record because I think at the core of that is dance music 
is very much designed to be experienced. And I think a lot of the dynamics in hip hop, especially have gotten so good at just like viral bangers. You know what I mean? Like it, it's very much this music that's not really about going out and being around anyone and more about just more content that like is quickly grabbing you. So, I mean, there's something there. I don't, I don't give think, Bridgerick too much credit, yeah, but. I, it's really good. And I'm sort of liking it more with each listen. And I think you're right. I, I think that your sense is this is kind of a breath of fresh air for almost the whole genre. Maybe you can expand on that idea. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting in how the responses to the record so far have been kind of like, like everyone has had the same experiences you kind of just described at first, at first not liking the album and then coming around to it and then like being excited to dance to it or whatever. And I think that's very much the case with, you know, where Drake is as a figure in rap music right now, which is, you know, if not the biggest one of, you know, the biggest in the genre's history. And here he is kind of making this huge leap in a direction that has nothing to do with how people have experienced rap before. You know, something I thought about with this record was how it sort of felt like, you know, a kid getting bullied in class or something, and then like standing up and like being himself and having this moment where everyone's like, you know what, fine. We're not gonna bully anyone anymore. Feels like the opposite of the sort of Tusi slide moment which was, I guess, all the way back in April 2020 when he was overtly trying to make a TikTok song and it felt a little sweaty. And you know we out here every day with it. I'ma show you how to get it. It go right foot up, left foot slide, left foot up, right foot slide. It was like sort of his sweatiest trend-following <laughs> moment. And this feels like the exact opposite of that. Yeah, well, at the same time, I do think Tusi Slide was like unfairly maligned. Oh, like, okay. It wasn't. It wasn't a horrible song, but I do think, you know, it it had the feeling of like a missed TikTok hit for sure. Whereas this album is so funny, right? Because it's, I don't know. I mean, maybe my you know for you page is different, but I feel like this album really landed on TikTok in a big, big way that I think he has probably himself been searching for, which is kind of interesting. One thing I've seen more than one person point out is that between Drake and Beyonce, this is maybe a moment where the black roots of of house music and electronic dance music are sort of being reclaimed. I think house has fallen out of favor in like popular music in general, in a big way, I think. And so a lot of the underground or whatever, there have been a lot of you know black and brown house DJs doing fairly well within that seen for the past 20 30 years i do think it is particularly interesting that like it is now something that within black culture is kind of being accepted in the mainstream and i think that has a lot to do with you know the history of its presence in the lgbtq community where you know that's where the kind of split right happened in terms of hip-hop becoming mainstream and these other subgenres that had a lot more to do with the queer experience the queer black and brown experience not getting that, you know, same pedestal. And I think we're kind of ha seeing that happen right now. That's really interesting. I'm not sure if he's thought of that angle, but that's really interesting. In a way, he probably has just in so far as like, I, the memes around the album, I think, are, are some of the most interesting, where it's like so much is happening with masculinity and presentation, where now it's like all these like super tough guys being like, at first I hated the Drake album. And then they're like dancing and like swinging their hips. And it's like, there's, there's, a, there's a broader discourse happening of just loosening up gender ideas and I'm in just like a general sense I think that's going on with like yeah it's okay to have fun and dance <laughs> I don't know and like enjoy yourself after being accused of propagating toxic masculinity for many albums Drake <laughs> is now shattering it is what you're saying turning around I maybe maybe he had to reach the peak 
of toxic masculinity to shatter this or something. I don't know. There's certainly, there's certainly, I'm sure, like a crazy argument that you could make if you're like a huge Drake fan, but I'll just give him credit where it's due. Like, at least we've got some hard nosed hip hop guys loosening up a little bit. Lyrically, he's still very much Drake on this album lyrically and in ways that actually I really enjoy. First of all, Text Go Green is just like if you had an AI generate the most perfect Drake <laughs> song title. I'm not sure you could do any better than that. If I come around you, can I be myself? Wind up in a mirror just to see yourself. He has one of my favorite lyrics, perhaps, of the decade from anyone on this album when he goes, I found a new muse, that's bad news for you, which <laughs> is just an amazing summation of male songwriting for decades. That's that's what half the songs written by men have been about for 50 years. I found a new muse, that's bad. I really enjoyed that for better or worse. Yeah, I think I think Drake also gets at something here, which I feel like is harder in the sort of rap posture, right? Where it's like, I feel like because of the context of being, especially like a male hip hop artist, everything you're doing is kind of coming from a perspective of like showing off essentially, right? So even if like you're talking about being heartbroken, she was a 10 and the girl you're going to replace her with is also a 10. And I think, you know, in this kind of new paradigm of like a dance track, a club track, a sort of euphoric beat and like harmony, Drake's entire ethos, which is unchanged, kind of like allow it, it kind of gets new room to like bloom in a way where it's like it doesn't have to feel as weird. You know, it's like and now it can kind of be a little bit more universal. Sticky Alone, that track is just undeniable. I, like I said, I think even people who don't like the album like that track. And I guess it's the single. Did it jump out at you? It's going to be huge. It's going to be like, it's going to be one of those songs that I think of it as in the same way as, I don't know if you remember the summer that Kid Cudi dropped Day and Night and kind of how everything on the radio went from sounding one way to like sounding a different way. Like almost, almost overnight. Day and night. I toss a turn, I keep stressing my mind, mind. I look for peace, but see, I don't attain. And I think that's kind of the impact that Sticky's gonna have, where that beat, that cadence, the idea of, oh, you can rap, but also make something super dance, you know, Pandora's box is open in a way with that, right? And he rapped in French over it, which I just thought was like, because I don't know, I don't know that like, and I could be wrong, I would need like a historian to like figure it out, but I can't think of any other time that Drake has like really hit like, a French accent and then it makes so much sense because he's Canadian I don't know something in that track just like it felt like this has been in Drake's back pocket for like many years this whole thing that he's kind of doing there yeah and it's like well it's like you pointed out there's been hints of this in past Drake right and right. more life had hints of it he, he's been kind of edging towards this you could you could see it that way and then you pointed out that massive is sort of like an R&B remix except even though it's an original song. With that beat particularly, you know, you think of some of the biggest DJs in that world right now, like the Ben UFOs and the Fortets, you know, those are the ones that play at the giant stadiums, not even quite stadiums, but really big clubs with like that booming a sound. And usually it's some white label, you know, remix that someone made but can't release because obviously they're never going to get like Neo or Erykah Batu or something, but it has like its, its place in the club. I feel like Drake really cracked something open with being able to release that as the artist. I think that's something that hasn't really happened for a long time. And like one would hope and one would maybe dream 
that like this opens the door to a lot of underground electronic producers or just electronic producers in general to work with more artists at that level and start to put some of this music out in a real way. To me, there's no reason. And I think it's like it goes back to like the 90s in a way where like albums would come out and then there would be three or four remix albums, you know, and I and I think that's kind of where it looks like things are trending towards. Right. Maybe just go back and remind us where we were at with Drake with Certified Lover Boy, which I think you liked more than you reviewed that as well. And I think that one got some negative reviews and I think you liked it a bit more than a lot of people. Yeah, I think Certified Lover Boy and the Drake kind of discography is definitely one of the weaker records just because I think it's so ultimately like it's not very focused and I think that's one of the things it suffers from is like you've got a few tracks here that are about this you got a few tracks here it kind of it felt very like rushed together like Drake responding to what the Drake brand needed to be and with this this is like I think one of the first just genuine expressions we've gotten from him in a long time because even if you remember, you know, thinking back to Scorpion, that was when, you know, the whole Pusha T thing happened right before the release. And so I think, you know, a lot of his releases have had this sort of backdrop and narrative and storyline that's been like tough for him to shake. And it always makes it feel like there's these last minute changes where like every album for the past few years that had like three or four tracks that felt like they were thrown on because it had a verse, you know, dissing so and so. And I think a lot of that has thrown off a lot of the momentum in his releases lately. And with this, this is like taking it back almost to like, you know, more life. If you're reading it, this is it's too late where these are just Drake where Drake is at trying to like give the people whatever, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I think this this is the first time he's felt really coherent in that way in a long time. And it's funny, too, even when you think about the last two tracks, because like it feels so it feels so complete by the end of that. 21 Savage feature and it's like that that kind of track would usually be in the middle of a Drake project you know anywhere but something about ending right there just feels like a very like I think that's one of his best like culminations in a long time it's also I think it's only 14 tracks right which is for Drake a very short and concise project and I think that also really helped him and it's very clean because he you know he loves these sprawling opuses and and that was definitely true of Certified Loverboy and this is Right, it's, it's almost the opposite of that because it, it's a focused sound, it's a focused statement, and he's not getting, like you said, he's not getting distracted by various feuds. It's just like being thrown off your game by external events, and now he's kind of reclaiming the whole thing. Pretty interesting. What other tracks stand out to you? Well, you mentioned Texco Green, which I thought was, I that to me was like the sleeper track, and then Tie That Binds, you know, towards the end, I think it's like second or third to last track. That to me feels closer to like him really landing some like Afro jazzy house. And if you go back into some of the like archives of a lot of these record labels, you know, there were like EP after EP of these like super salsa sampling, like why, like think of like Enya yoga vibes. And then there's like with these like house rhythms. And I think like he really lands something there that I think people are going to slowly find themselves enjoying on the flip side it's like i thought overdrive and currents were some of his worst songs i don't want to come on too strong but i'm moving to your <laughs> why especially with i think currents he just kind of like doesn't it gets a little too like sweet syrupy it's like 
he's like it's almost like he's doing baby voice you know yeah pronounces it's, it's california right. weird on <laughs> is it, oh no that's flights books flights books where it's like california and i'm like ooh. and the executive producer of this album was black coffee who's a major figure in south african house and, and drake's worked with him before he works with black coffee on more life which i think was okay. kind of the first one of the first times that a lot of people heard even this sound in general. You need me to get that sh- together so we can get together. You need and then, you know, and I mentioned this in the review, like if you really go deep into Drake's archive, you actually see that he has a lot of interesting relationships with, you know, electronic producers, underground DJs, you know, going back to working with Subtract and having Jay Paul before Jay Paul was really like a thing. Um, so it's, he, you know, and then he's got his whole grime moment where, you know, in that whole span of time, he's like linking and connecting with a lot of different producers and DJs who have ties, you know, to a lot of different subcultures. And I think that's something to Drake's credit that he does better than a lot of people in mainstream rap right now. The track Sticky was produced by Gordo. What can you tell me about him? Gordo's got an interesting background because he's almost perfect for a record like this because, you know, he has this career as kind of like bridging that hip-hop EDM wave for a long time. And I think that was a very big thing for a while. So you have your, you know, trap mixed with dubstep and things like that. And he was actually quite big in that world. I think he went by DJ Carnage. Um, and I think he retired and, like, he retired recently. You know, recently it was, like, a thing in the DJ world that he was, like, stepping out and not touring as much anymore and going to, like, get back into producing. And through, you know, throughout his career, he's worked with, like, Mac Miller and people, like, he's worked with rappers for those sort of crossover hits a lot. Um, and it's, I think it's really cool that, you know, he's a Maryland-based producer, he grew up in Maryland, and, you know, despite kind of getting famous in a wave that's a little bit more mainstream, commercial, electronic, for lack of a better term, you know, in his collaboration with probably, like, the biggest artist ever, he leans into the more underground roots of where he's from versus, like, delivering on, like, an EDM hit. Because he could have fully, like, probably given him, like, a Calvin Harris, you know, pop EDM track. But instead, it's like he takes it into kind of that deeper universe. And I think that's something that, you know, comes across throughout the record where it's like you actually can feel like Drake is trying to really get somewhere. I'll bring it back to something we talked about post-Astroworld, after the Astroworld tragedy, that sort of that maybe that was the dead end for sort of mosh pit rap, you know. There is that feeling out there that maybe that is dated and it will still go on like all trends that are peaked. It will still go on, but maybe the mosh pit is over and maybe maybe it's actual dancing again. Maybe that's what you kind of suggest in your review. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a there's like a whole Ph.D. thing that you could go down of how, you know, for the past decade or so, I think rap has very much borrowed a lot from rock. And that is introduced a lot of new demographics to audiences introduce a lot of new dynamics and that also goes hand in hand with like a weird rise of like florida born controversial kids and i think like now there's this turn back where people are looking towards a more a, not to say that rock doesn't have a black musical legacy but it, it, it is interesting that even going back to the 70s where it was the punks who said fuck disco and then now rap is kind of embracing disco after embracing punk for so long so there's definitely something happening um at the core of things i also just find it like it, it's been something that's been like harder or interesting to articulate in like kind of the music press or anything where a lot of these kids a lot of this like mosh pit stuff it's not terribly fun to be around like if you're not 
not even just if you're not 17, but also if you're not like really, really into it like that. Like if you're just a kid who likes the music, but wants to have a good time, like you're not really over here, like enjoying that as much as like you might want to enjoy something like that. So I think the culture has been slowly shifting for a while, you know, and I think the Astro tragedy was, you know, so unfortunate in so many ways and how, you know, nothing like that should ever happen. And I think it's like, it sucks that I think if this does kind of, if this cultural shift does happen, I think we will hear a lot more of people kind of pointing to Astro World as like the pivot point, which I feel like might be saying more than it needs to. But it's it's true, something that I, I've kind of observed as well. It's super fucking weird that that Drake was there and, and he was and has, com- and has completely been Tefloned away from it, right? It's like somehow somehow it's just <laughs> he just slid away from any association with it. It's kind of amazing. I almost have to give it up to him on that one. I mean, maybe that's what inspired the dance record. Where he's like, you know what? This is not going to work anymore. I mean, I had that thought. I had that thought. I think that is a reasonable supposition. But it, I mean, and then I, I will be talking about Beyonce, but it is remarkable. Do you think, if you had to guess, do you think the two of them are in contact enough that they each knew that they each had this coming? It's hard not to imagine. I mean, even going down to like, wasn't it within a day of Beyonce announcing that Drake announced this was coming? So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot more albums sounding like this were in the works. You know, I think even going back to last year, when Pink Panthers dropped, I think a lot of people in the music industry took extreme note of that and how quickly and how, you know, how capable that was of connecting to younger audiences. And a lot of insiders were predicting back then, and I think more people will probably start saying now that this is very much the way that things are moving. It goes back a bit further for me where even around the time More Life came out, and I mentioned this, you know, kind of briefly in the review because it's a piece I wrote years ago, but around 2015, 2016, there was this thing that people called, I mean, a lot of people called it YouTube house, but right. lo-fi house is lo-fi kind of house, what yeah. it's, it's well known as. And this was before they were like, you know, now YouTube is so crazy because they'll have like these 24 hour long, like chill beats to study to or whatever. (laughs) Right, right. I believe that's secretly the number one genre in the world is chill beats to study to. But yes. Well, right. And I think, you know, YouTube was early in seeing that the audience for, you know, very traditional house in this like fuzzy four to the floor beat. That a lot of these sort of like, you know, there were younger electronic producers and it was kind of cheeky at the time. But, you know, you had these videos like Mall Grab had one. It was Can't. It was like an Aaliyah sample, uh, Ross with Friends. There, You know, there's a lot of these things that, you know, people probably would recognize from like the videos that would be attached to them. Or it's like, you know, the Bart Simpson like swaying or something. All these things are kind of like already out there. If you think about it, like you can clearly see what kids are listening to just based on numbers. And yeah, I mean, I think the writing's been on the wall for actually a little bit of time now that if you really want to make it, people love dance music. Maybe maybe Disclosure can have a big comeback. Maybe this is their moment. They can hook up with some rappers. It's- I mean, they tried it too. And, let, you know, it's gonna, there's gonna be a, it's gonna be a very fun summer because, you know, I think we had this Disclosure even James Blake to some degree, you know, there's, there have been all these attempts at crossover moments, but I think all of those started from the top. And I think what Drake is trying to do and Beyonce to, I I think her song is a better example, but you know, they're, they're, they're all starting from that, the grassroots of it, right. Where it's like, let's take the sound as it originated and not the disclosure sort of like very sparkly, shiny, booming electronic. 
and that's why you know these tracks feel they feel like being in the club. They don't feel like being in like the bottle service club. They feel like being in like the sweaty club, you know? I mean, the obvious, and so many people have taken the tack, it's like that it is somehow a post-COVID thing. And I, I guess there's that too. It's part of the vibe shift, I guess. <laughs> the fucking vibe shift. Uh, Among other things. But I think, yeah, I think people have had a lot of time to not have to do the things they don't want to and not have to engage with stuff they don't want to. So it's going to be a lot more, I think, audience-driven going forward where i think it's going to be a lot more about do people enjoy this like period not are you big are you famous do you have a lot of followers but do people actually enjoy this and drake is loved and hated but i mean he just i mean he deserves a lot of credit he's 35 you know this is a, a pretty groundbreaking album to be making at this point in his career and people keep People keep wanting to write him off, right? And kind of just saying that the Drake era is over and he keeps saying, not until I say it is, I guess, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, when I think when Certified Lover Boy came out, a lot of people were like, oh, this might be the end of, you know, Drake having like a grip on what the kids are up to. And I think if you open up TikTok right now, they would beg to differ. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. So that was Jeffy Haza on the new Drake album. And now I'm going to bring on Manka Percante to talk about the new Beyonce song. As I was discussing with Jeff, it is the big dance week and some kind of mind meld. Both Beyonce and Drake have caught the same vibe. been other artists without as big a platform on this wavelength. One who we love at Rolling Stone is Don Richard um, and who released Second Line in 2021, like the spring, around this time of year in, in 2021. And it was an album she called an electro revival. And it was a beautiful, you know, mix of like house influences, go-go influences, bounce influences, Chicago house influences, you know. Um, it's just the Beyonce and Drake are just such like huge superstars that it feels like something new is happening. We actually talked about that album on the podcast and it's a great album. When superstars lay their claim like this, it does have a different effect ultimately. And even though other people have been doing it, it's, it feels like the culmination of something. I know you weren't necessarily blown away by the song. What are your main thoughts about it? What's your main reaction to this song? I think about the song that it samples, Show Me Love. Yeah, great song from the early 90s by Robin S. Yeah, 
There's some dispute over whether Beyonce's song samples it or just interpolates it, but it's certainly a huge influence either way. It's one of those early 90s house hits. CeCe Peniston's Finally is another one that jumps to mind. Yeah, and it, and I think about Drake's album, and I'm like, this is not holding up to me as high as things in its wheelhouse, I suppose. I think it's incredible because it's Beyonce. Beyonce very rarely does anything that is not incredible in some regard. The harmonies are beautiful. I think that it coming on the heels of some great uh, house-inspired electronic music, it just didn't hit me quite the same. It was cool, but it wasn't mind-blowing. So... One thing that I kind of thought was funny and I think struck you too is some people got really excited by the lyrics. Now, for me, the lyrics are just sort of in a trope of popular music, whether it's Dolly Parton's 9 to 5. Working 9 to 5. There's a long history of very successful stars who don't work anything like nine to five jobs taking the character of someone in their audience and bitching about their jobs. And in her case, it starts off, now I just fell in love and I just quit my job. I'm going to find a new drive. Damn, they work me so damn hard. Work by nine, then off past five. And they work my nerves. That's why I cannot sleep at night. But some people heard that and, you know, they got excited and they were like, Beyonce, welcome to the revolution. Beyonce is now anti-capitalist. And I don't know, what did you make of that? I think that that's a stretch. And because this song has those sentiments that you just described, Bloomberg, CNBC, these business publications are writing about a Beyonce song. And so I think the lyrics are definitely undeniable and worth exploring, even if like you can have a a great time and just sing along and not think too much into them. Uh, But you know, Beyonce and her combined wealth with her husband (laughs) is so astronomical that it's hard to imagine her being this character that she's described. And not only, you know, she hasn't had a regular job since she was a teenager. (laughs) You know, she's been performing my whole life. It's a nice thought to think that Beyonce is a voice for the everyday person who is struggling to make ends meet or struggling to thrive in a job that they may not love or what have you. But it just feels very far from reality. But I do think about formation. And there's a line in formation where she says, you know you that bitch when you cause all this conversation. And I think that's Beyonce's power. Okay, ladies, now let's get information. You know you that bitch when you cause all this conversation. Always stay gracious. I took it lighter. I took it, again, as just sort of in the tradition of that kind of song. And then it's sort of like, oh, you quit your job, you found a new motivation. And honestly, from her perspective, she'd probably be more likely to be like, the character quit the quit the job and then you know started their own business right that seems more <laughs> that seems more like the kind of thinking that she would have is that you know she she's a capitalist you know i think she probably thinks in terms of entrepreneurship and that kind of thing more so than you know labor movements if i had to guess but who's to say but, yeah there's actually yeah there's actually a line in the song where she, where somebody else at another business oriented publication and i think it might have been in the same bloomberg article that i'm referencing now said um the part where she said, I'm looking for motivation, I'm looking for a new foundation, and I'm on that new vibration, I'm building my own foundation. I think that's exactly what you're talking about, Brian. Like, I think that's how that could be interpreted. <laughs> I mean, that's just how that's how her life has gone, and that's how she sees it. I mean, it does show this unbreakable sort of grip on the zeitgeist that she has, though, that she would... that 
as far flung as her life must be from the concerns of regular people, she did grasp that it's a very good time to have lyrics in this vein, which is interesting, it, that tie into the Great Resignation and everything else. The purported Great Resignation, which other people say doesn't even exist, it was just people quitting to get different jobs. I think it's good that people are taking her seriously enough that even what might be throwaway fun lines that are now parsed for the social political meaning, because once you've entered that arena, you don't really pull back, even if that's not how she sees this particular song. So all good. Are you excited about an entire album in this vein from her? I totally am. I was actually listening to Above and Beyonce last night. Have you heard that? It is a dance mix album that came after I Am Sasha Fierce. And so it has a whole bunch of dance remixes to, um, it also includes the Ego remix with Kanye West's verse on it. I was listening to that last night and I realized this is not Beyonce's first rodeo. And so like, I don't really like the song If I Were a Boy, but there's a dance mix of it that I love on that project. If I were a boy, even just for a day, I don't allow And so I'm excited about that because I know Beyonce can pull it off. Like for example, one of my favorite songs in the world is It's Not Right, But It's Okay by Whitney Houston. And I, and I see that, I see Beyonce going in that vein, having a really powerful voice, having interesting songwriting and doing it over, you know, upbeat dance music that you can just feel in your body. I am excited about that. I do have friends that are like very deep into house music. One of them, uh, my friend is a DJ in New Orleans. His name is Lenny. And friends like Lenny and others are concerned that the first single doesn't show that Beyonce is working with the, the OGs in the genre. So, you know, Break My Soul is produced by The Dream and Tricky Stewart, um, who she's worked with. Well, both of them she's worked with for a very long time. But my friend pointed out that there's a house producer named Carrie Chandler, for example, that is, he is from New Jersey. He's considered like a legend in the genre. And we were texting about Break My Soul. And he was like, what if Beyonce would have collaborated with him? You know, what if Beyonce would have leaned on people who have been making this type of music for forever and given them the opportunity? I think my friends are expressing that the music would feel more authentic and perhaps be more enjoyable. So I was listening to a mix, a Boiler Room mix of Carrie Chandler's at my friend's recommendation. And the very first song, I was like, this is awesome. I love this so much more than Break My Soul. And so that's, and my friends were like, this is what we're trying to tell you. And before you go, I did want to address the British Vogue cover story on Beyonce, which had some beautiful photos. It also had a sort of accompanying piece, I wouldn't really call it a cover story, by the editor-in-chief of British Vogue, who got to hear the entire Beyonce album, and his description was possibly the most vague thing I've ever read. They said, instantly a wall of sound hits me. Soaring vocals and fierce beats combine, and in a split second, I'm transported back to the clubs of my youth. I want to get up and start throwing moves. It's music I love to my core. Music that makes you rise. And then it goes on, but with no more details. I guess they were trying to say it's dance music. Yeah, I mean, that writer is not just like any writer. He's like Edward Enninful is the editor-in-chief of British Vogue, and I'm sure probably very close to Beyonce. And I wonder, you know, I mean, that's the thing with kind of pieces like this that serve, I feel, that I feel like serve the artist more than they do serve the artist audience. I was kind of disappointed to get to the end of that piece and not know anything more about the process, not know anything more about the album or where Beyonce is in her life right now, besides besides the fact that she seems happy, which is great. I want everybody to be happy. 
Uh, I'm definitely interested in hearing for ourselves. And maybe that was the point. Maybe it was to not put too many ideas in our head. It was a beautiful cover shoot accompanied by some words. <laughs> That's what that That's exactly what it was. And but honestly, I, I think that those photos may tell us more about what this album is going to feel like than those words. You know, like the red stallion on like the dance floor is how it was described and her sitting on this giant disco ball. I was like, oh, this is gonna be dark. This is gonna be sexy. This is gonna be glamorous. This is gonna be fun. And that's a cool way to describe your album. That's a really cool way to describe your album. You're absolutely right. I'm sure in Beyonce's mind, that's exactly how she was thinking. If she had her way, probably there wouldn't be any words at all. But they probably said, we got to run something. And she said, fine, I'll have dinner with my friend. But he can't really, he can quote me on one thing saying that I, I like to be private and then say the music's good. And then you're out. Get out. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for joining me. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. We've talked about two legends so far. We've talked about Drake and Beyonce and thought we'd throw one more legend in the mix, an 80-year-old legend. Happy birthday to Paul McCartney. And I thought I would have none other than Rob Sheffield on just to talk a little bit about Paul. You said that you kind of see this belonging on a Drake and Beyonce episode. Well, absolutely. I mean, in so many ways, they are different aspects of the Paul personality, but it's crazy how much both of them have in common with Paul. Drake is so exactly like Paul. I wonder why People don't talk about it more. I mean, the best song on his last album was the one where he sampled Michelle in this like little sped up chipmunks version. Just I love you, I love you, I love you over and over again. I love you, I love you, I love you. Until I until I, I love you, I love you, I love you. Until I until I, I love you, I love you, I love you. And the the sheer stoned whimsy of that is exactly something Paul would do. That was sort of like the ultimate seventies Paul tribute from Drake, who is a very seventies Paul. Drake is very much the Wings era Paul rather than the Beatles era Paul. Although, of course, Drake got the tattoo of the cover of Abbey Road right on his arm. Um, but he is he is very much a Wings, Admiral, Admiral Halsey, Uncle think, Albert type of Paul McCartney. We're so sorry, Uncle Albert. We're so sorry. I think for Drake, the idea he got that to celebrate having more hit singles than the Beatles. More slaps than uh, the Beatles, was, yeah. Drake and I could have a conversation about how comparisons between the charts of different eras really aren't valid due to <laughs> streaming, but I'm not sure he would enjoy that conversation. And certainly I'm not in any way disputing the incredible hugeness of Drake. So why is Beyonce like Paul, though? Beyonce is like Paul because she is the kind of, this is so rare when this happens, that she is a legend in her lifetime, a walking, breathing God walking among us. And she gets better and better because she thrives on that. She got to the level where she was the most worshipped, idolized pop star on earth. And then she got a hundred times better. That's so rare when that happens. But like, that's something Beyonce has done already three or four times where she gets to a level where she absolutely could not be more adored, could not be more acclaimed, could not be more brilliant, could not be more creative. And yet she takes that as a goal to keep pushing higher. She, she very much like Paul, who, you know, with rubber soul broke through to where people could not imagine that this genius was existing in pop music. And he was like, you think that was a big deal next year? Wait till you hear Revolver. And the year after that, Sgt. Pepper. Beyonce is the one who's well, really... Well, there was a few other guys, Rob. Come yeah, on. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Nobody's saying there's not a few other guys. Although Sgt. Pepper is very much, you know, yes. like... 
just had to speak up in defense. I'm, I'm, of, I'm, you know, not, no, yes, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. not saying it wasn't the other guys, but yeah, yeah, the others, yeah. the others, you know, especially Sergeant Pepper. That was, you know, that was Paul's Paul's baby and and George Martin's, and uh, and that's something Beyonce has really carried that torch. You know, when Beyonce dropped her self-titled album, which it's so funny that Beyonce four seemed you know, untoppable. It's like, what a, what a statement that was. That was love on top. That was absolute peak Beyonce. And then she got like more amazing. And then with Lemonade, you know, that was very much her Sergeant Pepper in a lot of ways that she just, she keeps pushing on to other mountaintops. She does not rest on her laurels. There's something really beautiful about that Paul McCartney. Also, she will call up anybody she likes and say, be on my album, and they will drop everything they're doing to do it, which is a very Paul kind of thing. He loves collaboration the way she does. I guess one thing, well, first of all, you went to the Giant Stadium concert, his 80th birthday concert. I was unfortunately not able to go, much to my chagrin, but... There was this guy it, there who, uh, yeah, I think he was like a local Jersey guy. Yeah, that guy. Right. He was pretty good. Right. <laughs> Seems like it was a pretty good show. You said that Paul was just, it's the millionth show he's played since the late 80s, and yet it seemed like he was relishing every moment. N nobody loves being on stage more than him. Nobody hates leaving the stage more than him. It's always just astounding. And I kept thinking, you know, this is a guy on the eve of his 80th birthday. He turns 80 tomorrow. And what is he doing? He's standing up, rocking out, for three solid hours. He does almost 40 songs. He does not take a break, not even for a sip of water. At one point, he has a roadie bring him a bottle and he takes one sip of water, but he's still playing guitar while he does that. He will not even take a water break. When he goes from instrument to instrument, guitar to piano, piano to guitar, he runs every single time. It's just kind of astonishing. He does not want to waste a moment. He just thrives on that energy between an audience and a performer again a very Beyonce type of thing someone who was born in 1942 is running across the stage from instrument to instrument and playing a three-hour yes. after three hours we were all ready to be carried out on a stretcher we were so emotionally wrung out physically wrung out it you know nobody was not singing nobody was not up on their feet swaying back and forth to Hey Jude you know hearing Hey Jude in a stadium on a June night with you know, 60, 70, 80,000 people, however many it is, swaying back and forth doing all the na-na-nas. Like, that is that is just a, a primal spiritual experience. And that Paul McCartney, at the end of it, was really mad that they weren't playing him later. At one point, they raised the house lights in that not very subtle, like, okay, the union guys are leaving sort of way. And Paul made this speech like, oh, we have to go home. We really hate to go home. And I thought, wow, like they, they, they're they making him go. And he was like, okay, so now I'm just going to play one more song. And it's side two of Abbey Road. You know, he was <laughs> indefatigable. He, when Bruce appeared for the show, that was like a half hour interlude to the show. And Paul was not going to sacrifice any of his own show. It was like he did his regular show. Then he had a half hour Bruce Springsteen interlude on top of that. Incredible. And this is, and this guy is 80. Must've been nice. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, man. You were there in spirit. You were especially there in spirit when Bruce did, I want to, be Your Man, which was a fantastic choice for a Lennon McCartney song to do. And it was great that he was doing basically the Stones version. He added all this bluesiness to it. it. Made me think that it was also an 80th birthday tribute to Brian Jones in so many ways. Mm. Brian Jones, of course, uh, not someone who came anywhere near close to living to be 30, much less 80. But 
it is funny to to be like the the song I want to do from your catalog is the is the one you gave to the Stones, and I'm going to do it like the Stones. So maybe it was it was a a, a, a bit of a subtweet absolutely. there. Absolutely, uh, absolutely, I love that. <laughs> And later he came out to play guitar on the guitar jam at the end of the end. So it's like the word and really easy thing. But it's funny because like nobody's like really coordinated this with the guitar players. There are four guitar players trying to do the part where they trade off three guitar solos. They're really kind of <laughs> stepping on each other. And it's not 100 percent like, you know, mellow, easy, do whichever. And like Bruce is like, how do I fit it? These guys have been doing this for like thousands of shows. And how am I like sliding in here you know just and it, it was really kind of beautiful to see i wonder if you could just briefly the arc of paul's reputation is, is very interesting we've maybe talked a little bit about about this before i'm not sure i fully understood the extent to which he kind of was disrespected in the press in the 70s at certain points and and the, the sort of arc he had to take back to being who he always was which is you know Paul McCartney from the Beatles but there there was this he he really was shat upon by the press rather brutally at points in the 70s it's it's been it's an interesting arc yeah there's absolutely no public figure not anywhere not not in music but also like not anywhere who has been through this cycle so many times of He's the good guy, then he's the bad guy, then he's the good guy, then he's the bad guy, then he's the good guy, then he's the bad guy. He was the bad guy for so many years, and it's it's so weird to think like how for so many of his fans now, they weren't fans the last time he was the bad guy. And so it's probably really weird for them to think that there were years when Paul McCartney was so hugely disrespected absolutely everywhere by the audience and the media, even by people who bought his records. There was this he has just been through that arc where people project their own feelings onto him so that sometimes, you know, sometimes he is, he's beloved sometimes, but just, he always pushes through to the next arc. And that's the thing. He's still writing his story. I mean, now in addition to everything else, he will be remembered as the guy who was doing great rock shows at age 80, stadium rock shows at age 80, a little older than the Stones, but just, you know, among the only people at this absolute bleeding edge past the, any imaginings of what, you know, Chuck Berry played until he was old, but the shows <laughs> were up and down and, and, he, and he, they weren't stadiums. So this is just pushing it beyond, I mean, you know, the whole thing of like, I won't be sing, singing Satisfaction when I'm 40. They're now each two 40 <laughs> You know what I mean? It's just so wild. And it, you know, look, it, it will come to an end, but Brian. I think, you know, hey, listen, I once asked Paul, because he was talking about this sort of, these guys, when you interview them, sometimes have a habit of acting like it will never end. You know, they'll talk about, you know, 20 year plans when they're 75 years old. You know God what I mean? Bless like him like for just that. incredible. That's what keeps them young. Yes, clearly. and God bless That's him for that. Absolutely. But, you know, I asked him a question I've asked many people says, you know, in your sort of, if you had to choose, would you like to, would you want to die on stage? And Keith Richards has said, absolutely. That is exactly wow. how he wants to die. Wow. Um, Paul, <laughs> not so much. Paul's exact answer was, what kind of question was that? That's a good answer. That's a good answer. You know, Paul technically died in a car crash in November 1966, if you listen to the White Album backwards. So this is all bonus Paul. The Paul clone is, is possibly even better than the <laughs> yeah, original exactly. Paul. Is actually the, the that thing. clone is really underrated. The thing is, 
Paul just had his last number one album two years ago. And those are all new songs. He was doing new songs at this show. He's not doing repertoire. You know, he could, if he wanted to, he could fill an entire three-hour show with songs that he wrote before he was 23. And nobody would be going home unhappy. And he's and, and there was a funny part where he did one of the songs from not his last number one album, but the album before that, which was Domino Station, which is one of my favorites. Egypt Station, sorry, one of my favorites. But he... um. He said, you know, we can tell when we do a song you don't like, because when we do an old Beatles song, all the phones come out. And it's like a galaxy. And then we do a new one and it's a black hole. <laughs> but but <laughs> we're going to do it anyway, because I like this song. And it, it, it's something that at, at this point, he's got so many new songs. He could also he could be like Bob Dylan and say, you know, I'm just going to play songs from the last 20 years. And that would be a great show. It wouldn't be, you know, there might be a riot on 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 the premises, but it would be a great show, especially for those of us who love those records. But, I mean, he he was doing songs that he's written in the last few years. It wasn't just and, and songs that he'd written in between. It was uh, he he wasn't like Chuck Berry just doing, you know, here's here's the oldies, the oldies, but great ones, but classics. But Paul's like. Here's one you don't even know, but I'm going to remind you that I'm an active, current songwriter who still has hits. It's overall pretty amazing. And, you know, I think you've said, look, we were lucky to be alive at the same time on the same planet as this guy. It's one of the coolest things about being alive in our era. It absolutely is. And, and this might seem like a crazy comparison. I apologize for making it. But it's honestly, it's like people in the 1590s who are going to the Globe Theater and seeing, you know, like the new Shakespeare play, like with the groundlings, like I kind of feel like that's how it is with those of us whose lives have interlapped for a little or a lot with Paul McCartney's lives that, you know, or, or Prince's lives, you know, the really or Beyonce's or Drake's. But, you know, that these artists are doing this thing year after year. And Paul McCartney is just the exemplar of one who never slows down. And that's what keeps him young. And that's what keeps him alive. I love that you asked that question about his possible eventual not doing this anymore. He was just like, nope, what even kind of question is that? Why would you even conceive of a universe where that's a possibility? I love that about him. I hope he always stays that way into his 90s and 100s. And that is our show for today. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. We're a podcast. We're also on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. But download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe consider leaving us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. It's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.